Well, this morning, if you've got your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And in a moment, we're going to stand together, if you're able to stand, and read verses 13 through 18. As, as you see on the screen and on your listening guide, if you pick one up, the theme of our message today is this, Christ and His church. So in honor of God's Word, if you are able, I'm going to ask you to join me in standing, and you follow along silently in your copy of God's Word or on the screens as I read these verses aloud. Matthew 16. Beginning there with verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And friends, I would suggest to you that is the most important question in all of life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And this is our central verse today. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. May God add his blessings to his word. Thank you, friends, and you may be seated. I first began serving as a senior pastor, not too terribly far from here, on the west side of Montgomery, at Katoma Baptist Church. I was 26 years old. I had never pastored in my life, and I was single for five of the five and a half years that I was there. That's right. I was an unclaimed blessing for many years. Now, don't get me wrong. I could have married anybody I pleased. But until I met Cynthia, I didn't please anybody. So <laughs> we met, we started dating, we fell in love, we were getting serious. Well, I'd always had a policy that I would not date any young lady who was a member of the church. Now, it's not a written policy. It was not an announced policy. It was my own policy. Because, you know, if things kind of went sideways, we broke up or whatever, you know, it might not be the best thing in, in the congregation. And we were dating. We had gotten serious. And on a Tuesday night of a revival, as she had been attending church there, I was standing down front during the invitation, and Cynthia slipped out and starts walking down the aisle to join the church, unbeknownst to me. Everything within me was saying, go back, go back. You can't join. But she joined. We were sitting out in the parking lot after that service, and I was a nervous wreck. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'd always said I wouldn't date anybody who's a member of the church. Now you've come and joined the church. I just don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, well, let me tell you something. God told me to join this church tonight, and frankly, I would rather obey God than date you. <laughs> Mic drop, right? <laughs> I thought, well, I better hold on to this one. So I said, well, maybe we can just be discreet. Well, that was a real joke in a Baptist church, right? 
And of course, the church family fell in love with her, and they were so excited. And she and I uh, went out to Fort Worth with my mom and dad when I graduated with my doctorate degree from Southwestern Seminary. The night before graduation, I took her on a walk around the campus and did the whole thing, you know, found a park bench, got on one knee, popped the question, offered her the ring, and she said, yes. And we've been together for some 37 plus years now as husband and wife. But the cool thing I wanted to let you know is what happened that next Sunday at the church. I told Cynthia, I said, I'm going to announce at the end of the service that we're engaged. Take your ring off. And I put it up under the pulpit right before the service. And so at the end of the service, they had made some presentations to me on that occasion. And so I said, you, you church family have, have been so wonderful to make these presentations. And there's something that I want to present to you. So I'm going to ask Cynthia Johnson if she would come and help me with this presentation. And she came up and I reached and I got out the ring and I said, what I want to present to you is your pastor's future wife. You would have thought ejector seats had been installed in the pews. I mean, they leapt to their feet. As one person, they began to clap. They began to holler. They were high-fiving. Grown men were crying. The organist started playing the hallelujah chorus. It was quite a moment. And I told Cynthia as we drove away that day, I said, my face hurts from smiling so much. It was quite a moment. Well, I want you to note on the screen and on your listening guide that it was quite a moment when in Matthew 16 when Jesus introduced his bride-to-be. And what is the bride of Christ? The church. Matthew, interestingly, is the only one that uses this word church. In the Greek, it is ekklesia. It literally means to be a called out one. It carries with it the idea of being called out and called to something. We have been called out from the world. We have been called to Christ to go back into the world and make a difference for Christ as his ekklesia. This word is used again over in Matthew 18 when Jesus talks about church discipline. If someone sins and doesn't repent, when you go and you go with a witness, he said, take it to the church. Take it to the ecclesia. This word is, is a parallel word of a word in the Old Testament that is translated assembly. It means an assembly of the people of God. And God has always had a people. God has always had a group of the called out ones, but the unique church that Jesus promised to build in that passage we just read would be born on the day of Pentecost as we read in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But here at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, Jesus promised he would build his ecclesia. He promised he would build his church. He introduced his bride-to-be. So I want to talk to us today on this second Sunday serving as your interim pastor about Christ and his church, the beautiful bride of Christ, the wonderful body of Christ. And I like a word that you use, another Greek word, oikos, the household, the family. We are all who, who are Christians, a part of that church. 
the ecclesia. And there are two main takeaways that I want you to note as we go along here. The first one is this. The activity of Christ within his church is one of constant construction. Jesus said there in verse 18, I will build my church. Let me give you a little background about this time in the ministry of Jesus. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus took his disciples on several retreats. This one recorded in Matthew 16 is the last of those. And he takes him to a place about 25 miles north and a little bit east of the Sea of Galilee to this area called Caesarea Philippi. It literally meant Caesar's town built by Philip. Philip was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And if you know about Herod the Great, you know that he was a great builder. And so Philip built this place. It's in a very lush area right at the base of Mount Hermon. I've taken groups there many, many times. As a matter of fact, let me show you on the screen a picture. I've got several pictures of it. This is what the area of Caesarea Philippi looks like today. You'll see that massive cave there. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. And you see the waters there. These are actually the headwaters that flow together with a couple of other streams that form the Jordan River. And on the last of these retreats, Jesus takes his disciples to that place. I'm going to show you in a moment on the screen what it looked like then. But let me just say this. It was a center that was known for pagan worship. In Old Testament times, you'll recall that the people of God were constantly led away into idolatry. And one of the main false gods they worshipped was Baal. Not too far from here, the area of Dan, where Jeroboam had erected a high place to worship Baal, that false god, and God was sorely displeased. Now, eventually, the worship of Baal gave way to the worship by some of the people in that area of these false gods that were known as fertility gods, the Greek gods. And this became a center of worship for one particular false god of the Greeks, Pan. Maybe you remember pictures in your grade school books of, of this mythological creature, Pan. He had the legs of a goat, the lower body, but the upper body was of a man, and he played a, played a flute, right? The, the Pan flute. He was known as the god of the shepherds. He was known as a fertility god. As a matter of fact, the Greeks named this place Panius. Then later on, the Arabs, who cannot pronounce the letter P still to this day, called it Banius. If you go there today, as I've been many times, you'll see signs that call it Banius. And when Rome came in and conquered this area, that's when Philip rebuilt this city and he built a massive couple of temples there. Let me show you another slide on the screen. You see those little niches in the wall above that cave and there to the right of the cave. Those were little niches in the wall where they would place idols, especially in their worship of that nature God, Pan. And then I want you to look at what it looked like in the time of Christ. Look at this slide. You'll see that actually coming out from that massive rock face were several buildings. There is there, as you see, the cave entrance, a temple of Augustus. You see, in that day, they worshiped the emperor. 
they would say Caesar is Lord. And so Philip built a temple to the Roman emperor Augustus, then the court of Pan, that god of the shepherds, and then the temple of Zeus, and an upper tomb temple, lower tomb temple. This is what that place would have looked like in the time of Jesus. That massive cave that was there. Let me show you a little bit closer up picture of that. This is an aerial view. You see now there's nothing but ruins there. That massive cave that was there originally was full of water and out of it would flow this spring. And it joined, as I said, with other streams and it would form the Jordan River. So I want you to get this picture. This is still a region, the uppermost region, where Yahweh was worshipped, the God of Israel. This was an area known for Baal worship. This was an area known for the worship of false gods, Greek gods, the false god Pan, and the god Zeus, the Roman name for Zeus, Jupiter. He's the god of the sky, and he kind of led all the other gods in that mythology on Mount Olympus. And it was against that backdrop of false religions and idolatry and false worship that this homeless, penniless, Galilean carpenter stood and he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They began to say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then he asked that most important question, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter's just like a first grader. I know, I know. And he called on him. He said, I say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And church, understand, Jesus did not chide him for that answer. Jesus did not criticize him for that answer. Jesus did not correct him. Jesus commended him. And he said, Simon, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then comes this great statement. I want you to look at it on the screen. He says there in verse 16, or verse 18 of Matthew 16, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now you need to understand there's a little play on words here. The word Peter in the Greek means Petros. Uh, is Petros. It means little rock. Like a rock you'd see along the roadside, like a kid you'd pick up and skim across a pond. A pebble. By the way, in Aramaic, that is Cephas. When Jesus first meets Peter in John 1.42, he says, you're Cephas. I know your name's Simon. I'm giving you another name. Rock. You're a little rock. But then he says, and on this rock, now he uses not Petros, but Petra, which means a massive rock. It means something that rises up from the earth and projects out like a cliff. In other words, it's as if Jesus says, Peter, you may be a little pebble, but I'm telling you a boulder-like truth just fell out of your mouth when you said, I am the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the question is, to what was Jesus referring when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Was it himself? Did he go like this? Upon this rock, I will build my church? We don't know. 
Was he talking about Peter's confession? Many commentators say it was the confession of Peter that he built his church upon. Or was it Peter himself? Our Catholic friends believe that this is why, in their view, Peter was the first pope. That Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. And, and Baptist folks, I, I want to say to you, don't get nervous about the idea that Jesus built his church on Simon Peter because the truth of the matter is he did. He built it on Peter, and he built it on John, and he built it on James, and he built it on Andrew, and he built it on Mary, and he built it on Martha, and he builds it on you, and he builds it on me. He builds his church on confessing people. Those who come to a place to know he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me show you three different passages. First of all, I want you to look on the screen at Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul said it this way, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, that's oikos, of God, but look at verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul said the church was built on the apostles. Their teaching, their preaching set the foundation of Jesus, the chief cornerstone for the church. I want you to look at this passage on the screen when we look at the new Jerusalem Revelation 21 14 and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb even the foundations of heaven will bear the names of these men you bet he built his church on them and Peter himself wrote this look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, again, a spiritual oikos, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're all like little rocks that are pulled together, the called out ones, the ecclesia, and his church is built through our confession. And folks, his relationship, with us as his church, as I said, is one of constant construction. I'm saying to you today, we do not build the house of Jesus. We do not build the oikos or the ecclesia. We do not build this holy temple. Whenever authentic church growth takes place, it is the work of Jesus Christ himself. He said, I will build my church. It's not something that we do for him when a church grows. It's something in which we join him because he's called us and he's gifted us and he's put his spirit in us. And it's a divine activity in which Jesus, the great head of the church, gives us life, life to his body. And real, authentic church growth is a byproduct of a right relationship with our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get lined up with him, the church grows. And it's constant. He's been building his church in every generation, in all of time. 
His construction project encompasses every local congregation as well as the church at large. And again, friends, I just want to remind you, it's His church. He said, I will build my church. We look forward to the day when the Lord calls your next lead pastor here. But I want to be sure you know this. This church will not be any pastor's church. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the staff's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not some prominent family's church. It's not the Alabama Baptist Mission Board's church. It's not the Southern Baptist Convention's church. Friends, it's the church of Jesus Christ. He is the owner, he is the head, he is the architect, he is the builder, and church growth takes place not because of a plan or a program or a promotion or any kind of publicity, but because of the power of a person, Christ himself, working in his church. So the activity of Christ within his church is one of constant construction church growth is his will when we line up with him aren't you glad to know he does the work he builds his church but one other takeaway i want you to note on the screen item two if you're following along on your listening guide well I, i'm sorry i got a couple of verses first corinthians 3 6 i planted apollos watered but God gave the growth. God the Son gave the growth. And the psalmist got it exactly right in Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Crossroads family, let's let the Lord build this house. Amen? Amen. Then I want you to note on your listening guide this second truth. And it is this. The authority of Christ over his church results in confrontation and conquest. Verse 18 again, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You need to understand, when Jesus says the gates of hell, the word hell there, that's the English Standard Version from which I'm preaching, in the Greek is the word Hades. Hades was a god in the pantheon of the Greek gods. He was a brother of Zeus, the god of the sky, Poseidon, the god of the ocean and Hades was the god of the underworld in other words the place of the departed dead and that region of death where disembodied spirits live on came to be known as Hades so Jesus is speaking about that unseen world the realm of the dead it's really a synonymous word with death itself now in Luke 16 when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man the rich man who was lost died and Jesus said in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and remember he wanted Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and just touch his tongue he said I'm tormented in this flame so the place of the departed dead who are lost who are not Christ's followers can be called hell. And many commentators have referred to the gates of hell as defenses, right? It's a picture of gates on a fortified wall out of which armies would march and gates that would be closed and an enemy attacking would have to penetrate the gates and break them down. Joel Gregory said this, 
the demonic powers of the unseen world of spiritual evil will not be too strong for the church. The hell gates will pour out demonic hosts to assault the Lord's church, but she will not be overthrown. Rather, the triumphant church will assault the defenses of hell itself with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is confrontation with the forces of hell, with Satan himself, with demonic armies. There is conflict. There is confrontation. But you'll note I said there is conquest. Friends, I've read the back of the book. We win. We win. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. I want you to look at this picture again on the screen. This aerial view of this region known as Caesarea Philippi. And I want you to know something I found very interesting about that cave on the left side of the screen. In the ancient mind, that cave served as a gate to the underworld, to the unseen world, the realm of spirits, the realm of death. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that nobody had ever mined with a measuring line the bottom of that cave, it was once filled with water. They didn't know how deep it was. And in their minds, they thought that somehow underneath that water in that unseen world, the fertility gods were living and they were there during the winter time. And they would commit, those pagans would commit detestable acts trying to entice those false gods to come forth. That, that cave and the spring in it was, was pictured as that opening like a gate to the underworld that God's little G could travel to and from. One pastor, I, I read a message by Pastor Chris Edmondson, said that those pagans in Caesarea Philippi believed that their city was literally at the gates of the underworld, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. In order to entice the return of their god Pan each year, the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in horrible deeds, including terribly immoral behavior. So folks, I want you to know that when Jesus took his disciples to that place for a retreat, they must have been shocked. Look at this other slide that doesn't have the scriptures, but just kind of a picture of those buildings that would have been built there. This is what the disciples of Jesus would have seen when they went to Caesarea Philippi. And they would have known the detestable immorality there as well as the godless idolatry there. And no self-respecting Jew would have ever been found in that place one writer said it this way, it was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. Friends, lean in and get this. That's exactly the kind of world into which you and I go as soldiers of the cross. We live in a dark world. We live in a world of rampant immorality. We live in a world of all kind of idolatry is. But that's the world to which we are called. And I want you to think about that massive rock that you see there, like a massive cliff and the foundation stone upon which these churches were built. When Jesus said, you're Peter, you're a little rock. 
And upon this rock, right where they were standing, I will build my church. Could he have been referring to more than just the rock-solid confession of Simon Peter? Could he not have been referring to the fact that where pagan shrines and pagan temples stood and where there was gross immorality, that's exactly where Jesus builds his church. For we must confront false religions. We must confront pagan idols. We must confront ungodly values. We must confront, even in our day, rampant immorality. Could it be that Christ was trying to say right from the introduction of his bride that the church and its gospel was going to be built in such a way to attack evil and on the very places filled with idolatry and moral corruption, he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Do you see it? It's the church that is maturing, but it is the church that is to be militant. It's a church on the grow, and it's a church on the go. The kind of work where Jesus builds his church is evil, deceived, filled with falsehoods, idolatry, immorality, 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and that's the kind of world into which you and I are going to go when we leave this local assembly. I want you to drop to that conclusion, and I want you to note this takeaway, friends. Christ wants us as his church to take the fight to the enemy. And please understand, the enemy is not a reference to lost people. I fear that lost people feel like sometimes that we're making them our enemy. We love them. Our enemy is the devil himself. Just as Israel is having a fight on three fronts, not only Gaza, but now Lebanon and Syria. As a Christian, we fight on three fronts. We have an internal enemy, our flesh. There's an external enemy, the world. That is the world system, the world values, the world's philosophies. But there's also an infernal enemy, Satan. And I want to show you some scriptures that tell us that he is the one against whom we fight. This one's not on the screen, but in John 12, 31, right before the cross, Jesus himself said this, Now will the prince or the ruler of this world be cast out. Something was going to happen at the cross that would forever break the power of the one Jesus called the ruler of this world. Look at 1 John 3 8, this first follower of Jesus. John said this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, if we are a part of his ecclesia, we have been called out of this world by him, but we go back into this kind of world to join him in that fight. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 about putting on the full armor of God. And look at this verse from Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friend, 
If you think somebody is your enemy and your problem, pinch him. If he hollers, that's not your problem. We're fighting against cosmic powers, spiritual forces. It's time to take the fight to the enemy, to put on the helmet of salvation, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the belt of truth, have our feet shod like boots that are prepared for battle with the gospel of peace and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and go forth and do battle with the enemy. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 with me if you would. I want you to read something else that Paul wrote. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. You realize people are being held in strongholds? And we go with spiritual power and spiritual instruments and spiritual weapons to pull down that which is opposed to God. And the main weapon of the devil is death itself. Look at what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. People are held as captives to fear, fear of death. That's the main weapon of the devil. So what should our attitude be? As we go forth into that kind of world, look at Paul's writing here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. This applies to all of us. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape. Here it is, church. Escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. Do you understand when you leave this place, when you go to the workplace tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you go in your neighborhood tomorrow, wherever you go tomorrow, when you see lost people, I hope that you'll see them through spiritual eyes, that they're captives. I've had this image in my mind all week, I'm going to close with this, of these Israeli soldiers, the idea of forces that are about to go into Gaza, and they're going in there to do battle with the enemy with a goal of releasing those hostages, releasing captives. Could you ask God to give you a fresh heart to see lost people where you work or in your classroom or in your social activity or in your own family to see them as captives? And you're going to join the great commander as a good soldier of Jesus Christ to enforce the victory of the cross over the enemy who has them ensnared. And you're going to be involved in Operation Rescue. Let's put that last point on the screen. May our Lord use each of us in His great mission to rescue spiritual captives that are being held in hostile territory. Would you take that charge, dear church, and be a part of his ecclesia. Get involved with rescuing captives. Oh, the old hymn got it right. Rescue the perishing and care for the dying. 
snatched them in pity from sin and the grave. Amen, church. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. In a moment, we're going to be singing together, Great Are You, Lord. I'm going to be down here at the place of prayer. If you're here and you need a prayer, if you're here and you want to surrender afresh to the Lordship of Jesus, if you're here and you want to receive Christ as your Savior today, or you want to profess Him openly, let this church schedule your baptism, or if you want to join this ecclesia, get in the battle with this church family. You come. You come. Father, have your way in this invitation and give courage, we pray, to those that need to respond. May nothing hold them back. May they come. Some maybe just to pray. Some to unite with this fellowship. Lord, whatever the decision, may your will be done even now as we sing about how great you are, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen.